0: at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Today's guests are Agnes Cornell and sven Eric Skåning. Along with Jorgen Muller, they are the authors of Democratic Stability in an Age of Crisis, Reassessing the Interwar Period. I first came across their research a few years ago in the Journal of Democracy. It was refreshing to examine an often overlooked historical era through the lens of comparative politics. Historians are often drawn to large, significant events like the world wars. But democracy scholars examine the interwar period to find parallels to modern events. As the authors write, the ghost of the interwar period makes an appearance whenever the possibility of democratic backsliding is mentioned. But what makes their work interesting is the authors find that the real lesson of this era is the remarkable stability Of many democracies during this period of crisis. Well, thanks for joining me today. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Eric and uh, Agnes. Thank you. All right, glad (laughs) you guys were able to be here. I want to start out with just a basic question about your book Can you explain the importance of the interwar period and why democracy scholars are oftentimes drawn to this historical era?
1: Yeah, if I uh, start out, uh, the interwar period is, uh, you know, the time between the First World War and the Second World War, around 1919 to 1939 has drawn a lot of interest uh, because it was there was so much going on in this period. We saw a lot of regime changes, uh, first mostly in the direction to democracy and later on mostly in the direction uh, to uh, autocracy. We had the kind of major fights between opposing ideologies, uh, fascism and communism and kind of liberalism and and democracy kind of squeezed in the middle. And uh, on top of that, we also had uh, the Great Depression, you know, the the biggest uh, economic downturn on a a global scale uh, ever uh, taking place. And all of this kind of leading up to the Second World War, uh, which is the war in the world where most people uh, died. Uh, So this is really a a period where uh, it was kind of a high-stake uh, politics uh, all over the place, both on the international level, uh, global level, and, and for most countries uh, in the world were affected in one way or the other. And especially, you know, thinking of democracy, uh, there was a lot going on.
2: We could also add that uh, we had very, <laughs> there are very famous examples of, of um, experiences with democracy like the weimar republic and the spanish republic and uh, so on that that also are very well known and i think that is also one thing that that catch the attention of many that they know quite a lot about the interwar experiences of democracy at least some
1: some of some of of the uh, most well-known dictators uh, in the world uh, like uh, mussolini stalin and hitler were all uh, kind of ruled their countries in the
0: interwar period. Yeah. Now, your book, your title, uh, calls for reassessment of this period. Obviously, people talk about the interwar period often. They draw comparisons to it and parallels to different time periods. What are some of the common uh, misconceptions about democracies in these years?
2: Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I start on this question, then... Um I think think the most common misconception that we try to address in the book is that there has been too much emphasis on those democracies that broke down. And that is exactly those famous examples that we mentioned in the question before, right? That uh, instead of uh, focusing on those many uh, democracies that actually survived the period, these uh, many scholars tend when they make analogies, analogies to to the the modern era, to compare with democracies uh, that were very different from what we have today in established democracies, instead of comparing with those countries, those democracies that were much more established during this period as well and survived.
1: and, And to add to that, it's also our impression, and we find support for that in our analysis, uh, that the, the generally held uh, impression that economic crisis was the kind of main determinant uh, undermining democracy in the interwar period, uh, that has been kind of exaggerated the impact of, of this uh, this factor. You say there are kind of many other factors that uh, are relevant, uh, and emphasize that also the democracies that survived were hit by economic crisis, but still they managed to survive. And, and how? Was that possible?
0: I find that's interesting because it, it parallels our current experience where democracy survived through the Great Recession very effectively. We didn't have democracy decline or breakdown because of the Great Recession. But at the same time, we're now facing um, a very challenging period for democracy that has extended past the point of, of really economic rebound i mean now we're dealing with the pandemic but the the recession itself didn't cause a lot of these issues do you feel that some of these countries had issues before the financial crises and the uh great depression that were just exposed during this time period
1: so many we make a a core distinction between uh, new yes. and fragile democracies uh, in, in the book and kind of old established democracies. And the kind of new democracies were in most cases very weak and kind of problem-ridden uh, in, in many ways. So it's, so financial and economic crisis was one thing that that hit them but also the kind of misadministration so a really bad state apparatus uh, full of corruption, uh, uh, low levels of socio-economic development, uh, kind of low educated uh, level of uh, the, the general uh, population, uh, a lot of ethnic conflicts in many of these uh, countries, uh, inequality and so on. So uh, in, in general, you could, you could say that uh, it would take very little to topple these new democracies. And many of them fell because of it ec- for economic reasons, but Many of them fell for other reasons as as well. Uh, So there was simply a period characterized by a lot of different crises. Uh, So there was, uh, yeah, the the struggle between these uh, kind of totalitarian uh, ideologies that were appealing to many, uh, many people around this time. And then suddenly you see Mussolini coming to power in Italy and Hitler coming to power in, in Germany, which kind of shakes the great, power balance at the international level also. And they, out of a sudden when democracy in the beginning of the interwar period was the kind of the goal for many people in in these new democracies. Well, they had the chance They didn't really deliver uh, maybe on on many uh, different dimensions. And then now suddenly these kind of alternatives arise that could inspire them to kind of try out new systems. And even sometimes also get actual direct support from these uh, dictators to trouble their own democracies and then turn them into different kinds of autocracies.
0: I was interested here. Let's take a step back real quick and talk about your, your key finding. And the thing that's really important about your work that you try to emphasize is that many democracies were stable and, were extraordinarily resilient during this period, especially in the Northwest. Now, you guys look at two different factors that you guys think really kind of brought about that democratic stability. Um, I want to start out with the first one. You guys talk about democratic legacy and the importance of democratic legacy. It reminds me a lot of somebody that you mentioned that you kind of worked with on the book or talked to a little bit, Sherry Berman's work. Um, I thought her book, uh, Dictatorship and Democracy in Europe, I felt that that was the whole point of the book, was that as democracies, as countries have experience with democracy over time, even a failed period will help establish some of those legacies. Talk a little bit about the importance of democratic legacies for those countries that succeeded. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Agnes, you want to go. Sorry about that. Go oh, ahead. No,
2: I mean, uh, no. Uh, no um, I think what we, what we, what we emphasize emphasize a lot when it comes to democratic legacy, is that an experience of competition actually breeds uh, trust between the uh, the opposition and the incumbent or the different uh, uh, parties in in the political system. And uh, that is really important because uh, uh, if one, I mean, the, the main problem that we start out uh, when we write about um, how democracy survive is actually to, to, have, uh, to get compliance with the democratic system. And to get compliance, you need the losers in elections to actually accept Defeat, and they won't accept defeat if they cannot trust the the other uh, the the winner that they can actually have a chance in the future also. So if they if they think that de- democracy will be dismantled, or if they think that their rights will be uh, very seriously restricted during this period in opposition, then they won't accept democracy and therefore uh, a successful competition and successful turnover is really important. And that is, for us, that is what actually is important in terms of democratic legacy, or the most important part in democratic legacy. Uh,
0: I think one of your examples that you use as a very successful case is Denmark. And it's, it's clearly used as a very strong example of a, Of democracy by a lot of scholars, even today, like Francis Fukuyama uses his getting to Denmark example in in his books on political order. You're obviously talking about the early part of Denmark's development. You mentioned that the full democratization doesn't happen until 1903, but I went back to your article and you emphasize how Denmark has a tradition that goes much much beyond that, going all the way back to, I think it was 1849. Can you talk a little bit about um, that experience and what was important to establish the democratic legacy in a country like Denmark? Um, Eric, I, I'm getting the impression that you've got a good...
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. As, as, as the Dane <laughs> among oh. the two of us, Agnes being from Sweden, I'll take this question. So, um, what is... Uh, special about them, I guess that uh, in, in 1849, as you mentioned yourself, uh, you, were, you had a transition from uh, an absolutist monarchy into a uh, more constitutional monarchy. So with a, with a parliament, uh, two chamber parliament, uh, actually a, a very broad suffrage, uh, a great uh, majority actually of, uh, of adult men were, were allowed to, to vote. Uh, uh, the thing missing to be fully democratic were kind of two things, uh, kind of full universal suffrage, you know, women were excluded uh, and, and some other some minor groups uh, uh, in addition to that. And uh, the second dimension was uh, the parliamentary principle, uh, which is that the government was still appointed by the king. So it's not formally accountable to, to the majority in, in parliament. So that is actually the change that was made in 1901, but, but democratized uh, kind of uh, a further step. But these are about the formal rules. Uh, but what is more important in the Danish case is what happened uh, after 1849 and until uh, the interwar period. We had this uh, massive uh, emergence of uh, strong civil society organizations. So the peasants uh, mobilized uh, and they uh, created kind of dietries and uh, slaughteries and uh, all kinds of different things in these uh, cooperatives, uh, which are, are well known in, 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 around the, the world. And later on, the, the working class did the same thing. Uh, so uh, creating all kinds of uh, uh, civil society organizations and they were allowed to, they were not repressed by the, by the censor and, and, and by the government. And the special thing uh, about Denmark, if you compare it to, to Germany, for example, because Germany is all often emphasized as a case that had a really strong uh, civil society also, so why is it possible that Germany had a strong civil society, but despite that uh, they turned uh, undemocratic uh, and even kind of one of the worst cases uh, in the in the interwar period with Hitler's takeover of power and the Nazi regime and all that? So a major difference between Denmark and Germany is that uh, the Danish civil society organizations had uh, stronger ties to the old established parties that were democratically oriented. So there are more kind of uh, for themselves in the German case, and more had stronger ties in the Danish case. Uh, And another uh, difference was that uh, among the civil society organizations uh, that were not affiliated with particular parties, but were still strong and played an important uh, role as interest organizations, they were to a far greater extent uh, cutting across different social groups and different uh, party affiliations and so on in the Danish case. So basically, by being involved in civil society organizations, Danes uh, both uh, learned democratic practices. So, how does it work with these kind of uh, mini uh, policies uh, to organize uh, well, elections? They mostly had elected the leaderships, these uh, organizations, uh, be open to debates uh, and so on, and to have uh, face counter arguments. Uh, but uh, last and not least, uh, to be tolerant. Uh, towards uh, other groups uh, because you would meet every week in in this or or that uh, occasion in in different uh, organizations and so on and 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 finding out that your political opponent uh, can also be a a nice human being that uh, should be allowed to to have a voice in in the public affairs.
0: That that reminds me a lot of uh, a book I read called The Sources of Democratic Consolidation where uh, the author is talking about the Spanish case, both in terms of the interwar period, and then goes on to talk about the uh, about eventual um, Spanish democratization. And he continues to refer to an, uh, um, a, an idea of democracy with whom? The idea that you need to actually have a sense of Hey, I'm comfortable working with these people, which, uh, before Franco, there was a lot of tension between the right and the left, but after, after Franco's death, they kind of, they were able to be reconciled and they were able to be okay with losing those elections. So that, that definitely kind of reminds me of that idea. One of the things that I found was interesting that you continue to emphasize is the idea of party systems, not just the idea of a strong party. Um, not just party institutionalization, but party system institutionalization. Um, Agnes, do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of the party system institutionalization and its com- its importance to combine with that civil society aspect?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's really <laughs> comfortable then to talk a little bit about the Uruguayan Uruguayan case maybe in, in, in this regard, I think, uh, because um, I think that what we tried to write out in the, and that in that case is actually what the absence of civil society, uh, strong civil society can make, but also how strong political a strong political party system actually reinforced democracy, at least for some time, uh, since the parties, the big, uh, the two big parties, um, the Blancos and the Colorados in, in Uruguay, they actually managed to share power for a considerable time uh, time, and they had to they had to come they were quite equally big uh, so they actually had to compete and they had to share power between themselves and that actually worked as a check so they checked each other in terms of upholding the democratic system but once they actually once the crisis hit uh the system didn't really managed to handle the crisis and then also the parties decided among themselves to uh, disband democracy and then there were no civil society there to actually protect or to defend democracy because even, even in the face of a coup, the trade unions that were the only uh, like stronger civil society that existed in Uruguay in that time, they, didn't really, they couldn't even unite among themselves uh, to confront the coup. So that is a really quite, uh, I think, strong example of how strong parties are important in terms of checking each other in the competition, uh, but that uh, there is also a need for for links to civil society to defend democracy, because if, I mean, they can also cooperate the political parties themse- among themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, that was really follow- interesting. Oh, go ahead, Eric. Uh,
1: sorry, it's just to to briefly uh-huh. follow up. So one of the f- more important things. Uh, so not a- only about the individual parties, but the party system as such is that if you to a large extent have the same parties competing uh, round after round, uh, then they get into this iter- iterative uh, process of negotiations and competition mm-hmm. and so on. So basically, you you know you are opponents and so on. So if you won the last election, and you kind of behaved when in power, uh, then your opponents uh, have the impression, uh, well, that's okay. And we should probably also leave you alone at least not repress you when we get to power in the next round and so on. If Mm -hmm. the if it's just uh, all the mess with the parties, new parties emerging all the time, and, and so on, there's no kind of uh, baseline for collaboration and, and compromises. So it gets a lot easier if, if people know each other, uh, and uh, and of course another thing that is important is to kind of to what extent the, these different parties are rooted in society. So do they have a kind of large member bases? Do they have local branches and uh, and and so on? And that's where you get the ties and connections with many civil society organizations uh, going.
0: Now. One of the things I came across when I was going back to some of the literature that I've read on the interwar period was a discussion about differences between countries that had two-party systems versus multi-party systems. Did you find any difference in terms of how those countries, like the party systems, actually functioned in terms of enhancing or strengthening democracy between a two-party system versus a multi-party system?
2: I mean, to refer to the Uruguayan case again, I mean, it's really hard to say that it, it's actually, I mean, you can say, I mean, there is a huge debate whether this is actually a two-party system because there are so many fractions within the party themselves, but they but they somehow managed to uphold uh, the, party, the parties, even though they have very strong fractions within them. So it's actually a debate whether those were like two-party systems or even... If, whether those um, fractions could be called sometimes actually were independent, more or less independent parties. I I don't think we have really gone that deep into that question or do you have any? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So we, we did some preliminary analysis, which are not reported in the book on a statistical analysis and then show kind of no significant relationship between the number of political parties and, and the risk of a democratic breakdown uh, and also, earlier uh, studies have not found a very strong relationship there. Also looking at some of the other case studies. So we have uh, the UK, which is kind of a strong survivor, which is a two-party system or kind of three, two plus one (laughs) in in the interwar period and and Denmark with a multi-party system. And it doesn't seem really to make a a big difference. The, the, The most important thing is whether these uh, established parties are democratically oriented and and decide to collaborate uh, over the the center and exclude the radical uh, left and the radical right uh, from uh, kind of determining uh, political uh, space or, or or not. Uh, So, yeah, so we, we, we couldn't uh, kind of find uh, any, uh, it was the important thing is uh, not the number of
2: parties. No, mm-hmm. it's about the probably of the more about the, the the stability of the number of parties than the actual number of parties, right? So we have uh, we have uh, quite a, a stable political system, uh, political party system. Uh, that, in those examples.
0: Yeah, that kind of comes back to Manwaring's point about the um, about party system institutionalization and his findings. Um, really, the findings of a lot of Latin American scholars. Um, that focus on the the instability of party systems in Latin America and the struggles that uh, they've been having in recent years, um, although that's still something that you're trying to assess, whether that actually causes some of those issues, because we haven't seen complete breakdowns in, in a lot of Latin American countries outside of Nicaragua, um, Venezuela, um, and I'm not sure if I'm missing any on there. Agnes, you know more about that than I do, I, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean it depends. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Bolivia, for example, maybe it's, uh, it's also an example of democracy. Sure.
0: Now, to to kind of get back um, in terms of the idea of democracy, it's difficult to talk about parallels between the interwar period and today because we're talking about very different senses of democracy. Because obviously, you didn't have women's right to vote in a lot of places, the United States for instance, didn't allow uh, African-American... Well, technically you did, but in reality, you didn't allow expansive suffrage. Obviously, like today, the sense of what we think of as democracy is very different than what we thought of back then. Now, to kind of work through that, you guys used a um, more Joseph Schumpeter's more uh, minimal definition of democracy. Do you think... does does the way that we think of democracy today have any impact in terms of how we would kind of assess democratic survival? Or do you think that the lessons of the interwar period in terms of the stability of democracy still stand?
1: So uh, I, I think uh, the, the general conf- conclusion still still stands. Uh, so our choice of this kind of minimum definition of, of democracy, uh, which is, basically focused on uh, genuine political competition, was mainly based uh, on, uh, to be sensitive to the historical context where you didn't have universal suffrage and you maybe didn't have full respect for for various uh, civil liberties in in those years. And and
0: uh, just to be fair, I think you guys are right in doing that because it'd be difficult to do a more intensive sense of democracy with today's standards during that period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but
1: uh, having that, having said that, uh, I think from a f- uh, normative point of view, we, we totally agree that a, a more comprehensive understanding of democracy, including also civil liberties and, and universal suffrage is is, is superior at uh, but uh, if you consider, so is it, so if our understanding of democracy today is more demanding, uh, would that make democracy more fragile? Uh, I don't Think so for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason would be that if people think that also universal suffrage uh, is important and universal or civil liberties are also important, why would they then kind of try to refuse democracy and, and kind of not fight for democracy? So even, it gets even more important to, to kind of support not only competition, but more democratic rights. Um, I, I think a borderline case uh, could be the rule of law which is a a kind of a core component of liberal democracy. Uh, But there would be some, even some scholars, but also uh, parts of the uh, population uh, that would think that maybe some version of autocracy is better to uphold the rule of law than democracy because they, they wouldn't be myopic. They would kind of be kind of long-term interested in uh, in growth, for example, and and so on. But I think, uh, it's, it's it both empirically and normatively, I think it's uh, this argument rests on a uh, on shaky ground. Uh, so there are very, very few examples of dictatorships that actually kind of uh, uphold uh, the rule of law and strengthen the, the rule of law. Uh, it's probably more and kind of an iterative process going on where different groups in society push to establish a better state apparatus and reduce corruption. uh, And when that happens, then the population uh, gets more satisfied and probably tends to kind of confirm the system that is already in place and and, and so on. You come into a kind of a virtuous circle, whereas in other places, you are stuck in a kind of a vicious uh, circle where kind of all bad things just tend to reinforce each other. I
2: I think uh, regarding expectations, it's... it's, um... And I think the expectations that, that are dangerous to democracy today and also that were dangerous in the interwar period, it was also probably that people, if they expect things that don't don't come necessarily together with democracy, like immediately improved uh, policies of some kind, like education or economic development, or if they expect that those things come as a result of having a democratic system, then that could be like putting too high expectations on the democratic political system. And that is something that is discussed quite a lot, I think. And, and that is important, but it's not about demands of like a higher equality of democracy and uh-huh. It's not related to the expectations about that, but more about other outcomes that are not necessarily immediately at least related to democracy and will not result immediately as a result. I mean, in in new democracies that may have a lot of other problems and so on.
0: Now, of course, we have seen a decline of rule of law in countries such as Poland, Hungary, and many are arguing right now within the United States, uh, especially with the upcoming election that's going on. Now, one of the The kind of concerns in terms of a lot of democracy literature that's kind of blurred the line between, hey, what is a democracy versus what is not, is the idea of election laws themselves. You can have the presence of an election that's even competitive, according to Stephen Levitsky and and Lucan Way, yet still have something that is not completely a free election or a fair election, so that they call it competitive authoritarianism. I guess the question that I've got is, using a minimal definition of democracy, it, like is, is the stability of democracy just enough that it might delve into competitive authoritarianism? Or would you say that the strength of democracy is strong enough that within most countries that will find a way to avoid falling into that vicious cycle that I think Eric was describing before?
2: Sorry, tough question.
0: All right, (laughs) Agnes. No, I mean,
2: I I think that, um, I mean, it, it goes against, I mean, it's goes back to our, our main argument in the book that some, some democracies will be more prone or more prone to democratic breakdown for, for the same reasons that we have discussed. And uh, so, a minimalistic democracy is not the same as having a competitive authoritarianism. And a lot of uh, countries also in in the earlier days were also competitive authoritarianists and they were not minimalistic democ- democracies. Uh, so, so I think the, the yeah there are different questions baked in this in this question. I think, but but the main the main thing that we take from this is that democracies that don't have these conditions that we stress in the book, like a, a strong uh, democratic legacy or a strong associational landscape and not the structural factors that are conducive, uh, that also strengthen those factors, they are more prone to democratic uh, breakdown. Um, so they can also, fa- they are also more prone to f- to fall back to this competitive authoritarianism. Uh, uh,
1: and I think that another point that is related to this is that the, with regard to the democratic legacy, it's also really important uh, what kind of legacy you have had. So, well, it's uh, better to have kind of minimally competitive elections than having uh, no elections at all. Uh, of
0: course. Uh,
1: but it's even better to have also elections and a political system where you have a high level of respect for civil liberties and universal suffrage and all that that's a point we also make in the book that the the higher level of the quality of democracy for longer, longer time, uh, the the better the legacy is when you, your system is facing uh, different kinds of uh, challenges and so on. It's easier to overcome if you have had a good democracy, rather And if you have just barely kind of crossed the threshold of being accepted to, to the set of of, of democracies.
0: Okay. Now to Kind of talk about the country selection, I thought it was interesting because you expanded the number of countries that we examined um, because typically the interwar period, we're talking specifically about Europe. But I was really impressed with how you incorporated Latin America within this. So you've already talked a little bit about Uruguay, which to me is a fascinating country for how it has such a strong democracy today. Um, so it was great to hear about a bit more about its history that I didn't know as much about. But can you talk about what the impact on your study was, how it reinforced the information that you found, and if there was anything that you learned by introducing Latin American countries into the sample size? Uh, Maybe Agnes, I know you study a lot of Latin American countries.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I, I definitely think that that we learned a lot because we... Like incorporating Uruguay, for example, we got an example of this having strong uh, political parties without uh, civil society. And that was also a little bit the same thing in Chile uh, and to some extent in Argentina as well, that you had like uh, stronger political parties than civil society. Uh, and I think that was something that we actually added uh, with adding this um, yeah broadening uh, the sample and also of course uh, a little bit different levels of uh, economic uh, development but also to see the differences within the region that those countries that had actually a stronger economic and social development and political development as well uh, in also in the latin american region where those can those democracies that actually survived uh, longer <laughs> even though they didn't they didn't <laughs> Survive, uh, but, uh, but yeah, they at least they survive longer. Um, apart from Costa Rica, that's actually survived uh, the entire period. Um, so, so I think that we, we by by broadening the sample, we actually added variation to our sample that was quite important. Hmm.
1: Um, yeah, but but, but still, uh, our general finding seems to be valid across the different regions. Uh, so, both the the Latin American cases and the European cases and, and the former British settler colonies tend to fit our overall uh, expectations. So, uh, what 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 we could then see with including Latin American cases was that also on other under other contexts and with different combinations of our explanatory factors, uh, we would also see the patterns emerging uh, that we would expect from our theory.
0: I thought that was. Oh, go ahead, Agnes. Now,
2: yeah, what what is also really interesting, I think, is to see how international the interwar period was, right? To see how the communists, uh, how the anarchists, uh, the anarchists who fled from Russia, for example, to Uruguay and um, and Argentina, were important in creating the trade unions, and also how how other groups were were inspired by the fascist uh, fascists ideologies and so on. So you actually see these patterns of this. And also the economic crisis, of course, uh, which also hit uh, Latin America very gravely, right? In the same, so you see that there are a lot of, I mean, the the age of crisis is also an age of crisis in Latin America. Uh, So that also goes to some comments about seeing the same patterns, uh, but also in this like very international world of uh, the interwar period.
0: To kind of double down on this topic, typically in the literature, they emphasize Czechoslovakia in Finland as being strong exceptions because uh, they were on, they were outside of that Northwest corridor in terms of democracies. You just mentioned that Costa Rica was a country that survived as well uh, during this period. Can you explain what was different about Costa Rica as opposed to the other countries?
2: So, Eric, you
1: yeah. Yeah. I can say a few words on, uh, on that uh-huh. uh, because uh, So uh, Costa Rica kind of barely survived, I I would say. So it survived on a very low level. So this is one of the cases in the interwar period that just the the competition was just good enough to qualify for calling it a minimalist minimalist, uh, democracy. And we actually saw it breaking down just after the second world war in 1948 with with a civil war. And only after the civil war, you really had the conciliation between the different groups uh, in, in society and had a more, more stable uh, society. But uh, still uh, Costa Rica does fit our explanatory model uh, mm-hmm. because uh, it, it has a democratic legacy back to the 1890s, but you had the kind of first turnover. which is one of the kind of clear, I think, how to identify uh, minimalist democracy is if you have through multi-party elections. You actually have a a turnover from uh, one party winning elections to another party winning elections. Uh, That's a really strong indicator of of competition. So they had a a long tradition of of that that they could draw on. And in relative terms, compared to other Central American cases, uh, the uh, associational landscape, uh, so the strength of the parties, and the strength of civil society organizations, so they were much better off than in Honduras and in Guatemala and, and, and other cases like that.
0: What about Czechoslovakia then that is brought up a lot in the literature? It survived yeah. up until uh, Germany invaded it. And uh, what, what was different about that? Because it it's, it's now part of Eastern Europe. It is, it's divided now into more than one country. Um, and it, doesn't necessarily ring as being a, um, the strongest democracies today, obviously, the Czech Republic or Slovakia. What made it different at that time?
1: Yeah, so Czechoslovakia is a really interesting case. And it, on the one hand, it doesn't really fit our explanatory model because the democracy survived until uh, the Germans uh, German occupation in, in 1938. Uh, they didn't really have a strong democratic legacy they could, could draw on they did have a strong civil society organizations. So it was a pretty rich country with a strong working class uh, and also other strong groups that uh, were organized. But here actually, you you could say that that leadership, you know, uh, important individuals uh, maybe made a a difference. Uh, The President uh, Masaryk, uh, who was a a university professor, a, a philosopher, a strong believer, in democracy, really saw it as his personal agenda uh, to hold the country together, uh, to uh, uphold uh, respect for democratic rights and try to make compromises and collaboration uh, between different ethnicities and different uh, social uh, social classes. And maybe if it hadn't been for him, uh, I think that the the chance or risk of uh, breaking down uh, before German occupation had, had been much higher in the, in the Czechoslovakian case.
0: Do you think that elite involvement becomes a band-aid, though, because it kind of can cover up for civil society? I was looking at an article by, um, who was it, uh, Frank uh, Arabrot and uh, Stenbergland, and they it wasn't one you cited, although I know you guys have cited them. Uh, it was called Statehood Secularization Cooptation they They referred to the idea of a lot of the Eastern European countries today that it was um here they say elite cooptation is more dependent upon the political cultures that are emerging now. Um, some of the traditions for elite cooptation in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union are in themselves far from democratic. Uh, clientelism, kinship and corruption are hard to reconcile with democracy, but may nevertheless uh, fulfill a purpose in the progression towards democracy. And they're kind of bringing up the idea that it's it's kind of difficult if the elites are doing all of the work. And they wrote it back in 95, which today you look back and you kind of wonder, is that the reason why we're having struggles today within Eastern Europe, parts of it in terms of democracy?
1: I think co- compared to the interval period in, in, in the Northwestern countries uh, mm-hmm. that the, the parties are not as well rooted in, in society, uh, in, in kind of the new EU members as they were in, in Denmark, for example, in, in the, in the, in the, in the period, you have seen a lot of uh, parties emerging and collapsing in in the, these new democracies in Eastern Europe uh, so everything has been, been in the flux. Uh, so the stability needed to, to have this, uh, you know, getting used to each other and the uh, competition and so on. I think if it hadn't been for the EU and the pressure from the EU to kind of behave well on a, in democratic terms in order to first get access and remain in, in the group, uh, it wouldn't have looked as, as good in, in Eastern Europe. And that's probably what you see now that some of these countries, Poland and Hungary, you mentioned yourself, they have now been admitted uh, full members of the EU and it's really hard to throw them out or or, or, introduce sanctions uh, against them. So maybe now they lead seed as a chance uh, to actually mingle (laughs) uh, and kind of undermine the the rise of the opposition and and so on. And they, until maybe don't face as much resistance from below and within the parties because they are really kind of top down dominated uh, parties uh, and uh, civil society organizations are not super strong. It's not like all people working class, people are organized in unions uh, and, and so on as they were in, in the Danish case in the interwar period, uh, for example. Now- so to, 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 to some extent, they're mm-hmm. actually worse off than, than the cases that were good off in the interwar period. I think there are some other conditions that pull in the different direction, you know, uh, still with the EU playing a role and,
0: and so on. So I'm, I'm yeah. I find it interesting because your book makes the case that it's mainly structural conditions that make the difference. Some works, for instance, Tom Ginsberg and Aziz Hook wrote, um, a, wrote a book called How to Save a Constitutional Democracy uh, probably two years ago. They actually use an interwar example, which was Finland, and the uh, Lapuan movement as the example but they make the case that oftentimes it's non-elected leaders the leadership from them that is that allows us to oftentimes save democracy when it's in a moment of crisis i'd like to ask you what do you see a role for the decisions of elites in terms of making a significant impact on democracy, or do you feel that the structural conditions eventually win out, even if the elites can delay democratic breakdown for some time?
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's definitely the elite that acts <laughs> to, to to protect democracy or to break down democracy in many cases. But I think that we, we think of actors like they are incentivized by these uh, these factors, these structural factors. And so there is very little maneuver, actually room for maneuver or their their type of behavior will be very much um, a result of these structural actions. But of course, there is also always these random things that happens in human behavior. And so, so that it can be the case in, in, in certain cases, of course, that individual action actually had had an uh, effect in an individual case. But when you see the general trends, you will actually, we will lean towards these structural factors that actually have an impact on how these elites behave. Um, so, so
1: so, basically what we do is that we put up a, a, basically a causal chain going from different background factors such as socioeconomic development uh, riparian uh, democracy uh, bureaucracy to what extent there is uh, ethnic diversity in society and so on and that has an impact on whether a society has a democratic legacy on the one hand and uh, a strong associational landscape on the other hand and of course to unfold uh, these uh, structural and institutional conditions it has to go through uh, Actors, individuals, so humans drive history. That's, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, uh, but they do it under circumstances that they are not uh, mastering themselves in in all uh, detail. Um, so, and what we find in our statistical analysis, uh, and we have these case studies to support our findings, uh, are some really manifest, uh, strong patterns. So, geographically, we can see. <clears throat> basically all what we call uh, Northwestern countries in, in Northern Europe, they survive and all the Southern European and Eastern European countries, they, uh, their democracies uh, collapse. And if this had been more a, a matter of individual choice by the leaderships uh, than these background conditions, we would see a much more scattered uh, outcomes, uh, So some of the Scandinavian countries would have uh, broken down and some of the Southern European countries would have uh, democracies would have uh, survived. Uh, So we see these uh, strong patterns uh, that are uh, you can see geographically and that's uh, geography tends to be highly correlated uh, with our explanatory factors. uh, Since uh, the the correlation is is so strong, uh, we see them having a greater impact than uh, individual choice by particular leaders.
0: So do you think that Czechoslovakia would have survived if Germany had not invaded it? Or do you think that the structural conditions would have been such that it would have eventually broken down?
1: So the che- Czechoslovakian case, uh, as we mentioned before, is a little bit special because like uh, died uh, just before the Germans uh, invaded and, and Venus took over and, and tried the best he could uh, to, to make a, the ship uh, sail on, uh, but it's it isn't an intermediate case. Uh, also, mm-hmm. with, with our predictions, would be that it would survive longer than many of these other cases, but uh, not as long maybe if it was would face really serious challenges as, uh, as Sweden or, or, or Norway or, or, or the UK.
0: Okay, well, I kind of want to, um, for we're getting close to the end, so one of the questions I want to ask that's a little bit more. Um, philosophical. This week, I, I took some time to compliment your book. Uh, I went back to a piece that I'd been meaning to read because uh, Chantal Mouffe and some other theorists that I read has constantly referred to it. Um, Carl Schmidt, I read his piece from the interwar, which he wrote during the interwar period, The Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy. And I, I don't want to get too deep into all the craziness behind Carl Schmidt, But what was interesting in the piece was he felt that there was, as we're kind of ending the first wave of democratization, there was a bit of a crisis in his mind between institutions that had previously been deliberative versus as they were kind of, as democratization was taking hold, moving those to become um, more about, mass mobilization, representative institutions. So for instance, parliament, rather than just being an old boys club that got together and just talked about things, became more of a representative body. So it was kind of transforming. Today, do you see any clear crisis of democracy that we're facing that kind of reflects a transformation of how we think about democracy or anything else that might parallel the end of this first wave of democratization?
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you uh, uh, bring uh, Smith uh, to, to the agenda here. Well, he was a, a major figure uh, in, in the debates in, in the interwar period uh, and, of course, also after that. At what worries me a little bit uh, about his argument is it seems to be a, a premise for his argument that mass parties and elections necessarily lead to bad policies.
0: Of course. Uh, I would agree.
1: And I, th- and I think that's, uh, well, you can off say that this is the argument that you bring against the populism and so on. So it would just kind of be the lowest common denominator deciding the policies and it would just be very narrow minded and not thinking of the society at large and, uh, and so on. But you could also come up with arguments actually saying the exact opposite. So if it wasn't for mass parties and elections to hold our politicians accountable, how can we then make sure that the politicians actually uh, legislates uh, in the uh, interest of the general population and not only in their own self uh, self interest. So to go back to the classics, uh, even further back, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Aristotle's uh, critique of Plato's uh, vision of these philosopher kings, So who should guard the guardians? How can we make sure that these old men, from the elite deliberating in parliament, uh, they actually think of the, the ordinary citizens, uh, and I think, both uh, theoretically and also empirically, uh, there's a lot of uh, to be said that it's in favour of democracy. So only where you have these parties uh, and elections pushing the elite to think of the ordinary citizens, you actually get policies that help. Uh, developing the broader society rather than the the opposite it doesn't mean that democracy always introduces uh, just policies and so on but there's a strong tendency empirically that uh, democracies avoid excesses in terms of uh, repression in terms of radical economic policies that totally undermine economic growth and development, uh, like the Great Leap Forward in, in, in Mao's China, for example, the, the planned economies under Stalin. This is kind of kind of muddling through kind of approach. Uh, maybe you don't get the extreme growth rates as we see in China, but then on the other hand, you also don't get as much uh, pollution and all the repression and uh, kind of a closed society at, at large. So uh, I simply would question the, the premises, uh, of, uh, of Smith in, in this case.
0: No, that's fair. There's a recent book that I uh, reviewed by Ivan Cervac, um who uh, wrote a book called epistemic democracy, where he makes the case that um, kind of flips the anti-democracy argument on its head, where the typical anti-democracy argument is um, that you can have to have an epistemic government, one that's based on knowledge that it needs to be authoritarian. He argues that only in a democracy where you have free speech, you have the ability to bring things to the table. Can you actually come up with the best policies in the long run? Even if you make mistakes along the way, you're more likely to correct those mistakes uh, within a democracy. And he does it from a very philosophical standpoint. You're talking about from a very uh, empirical standpoint that we found data to to base that on. But even from a philosophical standpoint, you can kind of come to that same same argument as opposed to some of the recent anti-democracy books that try to try to pretend that if you make it so people are, you know, only allow people who are smart to vote that you'll come up with the right decisions. Um, I mean, I think going all the way back, well, Dahl is the most obvious example who would mm. say, hey, if you don't allow people to express themselves and bring their own issues to the table, those issues just aren't going to be brought to the table.
1: So, exactly.
0: Yeah. No, I'd agree with you entirely. Um, you guys, to, to kind of conclude here, I found it interesting that you wrote uh, a piece in the Journal of Democracy in 2017 that had a lot of the work that was in this book. But you published the book in 2020. Um, like, were there some challenges along the way? Was it that you guys found a lot of new information to kind of add to it? Um, I was really excited when I saw the book, but, um, and I remembered your article from 2017 when I saw it, but I was like, you know, I, I I just would have imagined the book had come out earlier. So do you guys want to talk a little bit about what, um, what you guys added, what, what all went into it?
2: I mean, I think one main, major addition were the cases. Uh, like that we worked through through the cases very fr- thoroughly, the case studies. I think that's the the, the thing that took the, the most time in in this lapse <laughs> between the Journal of Democracy article and the book. The case um,
0: studies are beautiful, by the way.
2: Yeah, so the, they're that they're is, very well done. That's what we added the most, I think. And then also we fought more about the theoretical argument also. So it's a little bit developed in the book, I think, uh, compared uh, to, the, to, the, to the article. Uh, we developed the theoretical argument uh, quite a lot so, in
1: the book. So, so I think our argument about democratic legacies we, we had more or less from, from the beginning. Not really clear how to operationalize it in our empirical analysis and so on. But we had a clear idea that there was a strong connection that had been somewhat overlooked in, in previous works. But the relationship between the party system and the civil society, uh, I, I think we, we, we were led a little bit astray by the debates in the literature, you know, there's this one, one strand saying, well, civil society is there. It's just, you know, the stronger, the better. And we had some critics saying that, well, it has to be, uh, it has to be that the party system is is, is more important than, than than civil society and how they would relate to each other and lead to different outcomes. Uh, that was really tough not to to crack, uh, but I think eventually we, <laughs> we I think, think we we managed to make it uh, do it in a convincing way both theoretically and uh, yeah, obviously the, the, the fit with the empirical uh, patterns is, is is very strong. Yeah. And I, then I th- a, a whole year of this process is just. You know you submit the whole manuscript to to the publisher of course and it just takes uh, years and you know, ages before they, they get things uh, done and, but, yeah. i
0: in terms of the party I, I noticed the party system institutionalization was new from the article to the book mm-hmm. i thought that was really impressive mm-hmm. and i do think that the way that you describe psi it, it's not psi or civil society it was the combination of the two mm-hmm. is going to be important beyond your discussion of the interwar period and help scholars be able to think through what makes a democratic society in general. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that is relatable to democracy literature beyond just your book in just this Mm -hmm. period. So I thought that was really impressive. And uh, I did notice that being something that was a big change, um, big addition to the article when I kind of went over it again this morning. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I I really appreciate the time that you guys took. Um, Again, it's uh, Sven, Eric Skanning and Agnes Cornell. Uh, The the book, again, just to kind of reemphasize that, is Democratic Stability in an Age of Crisis, Reassessing the Interwar Period. Thanks for joining me.
2: Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Yeah, a real pleasure.
0: The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank the publicity team at Oxford University Press, who have made many copies of their recent publications available to me, including this one, Democratic Stability in an Age of Crisis, Reassessing the Interwar Period. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their songs. You can find their music on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. I also write a blog where I review works of political science. Every week I write a new review and publish a new podcast, so please subscribe. Thank you for listening.